later on, um, yeah, later on I was taught by not one, not two, but three javelin operators. And one of them was an instructor in the British Army, an actual javelin instructor who had all the manuals. He had all the, the pictures, the whole, the official, everything, right? He had this, this cards that he carried when he was an instructor, um, kind of a quick reference for all the different signs of it on, on the javelin mm-hmm. and everything. So that was one of the uh, things that we did. Um, about half the stuff we did was training, half we did is fighting. So I can go into, so the timeline of this, that was Kiev. We trained his troops. Broke the rocket, which is, I'm still laughing about that. So is Mark. It's, it's pretty awesome. Hopefully they fixed it, but hey. And, um, and after that, we, Kiev didn't work out for us. Some of the things there weren't what we wanted. Um, there was a lot of infantry fighting. There wasn't artillery fighting that you wanted to do. And Mark was very, very specific. This is what I want to do. I want to defeat their weapons of, of uh, kind of offensive weaponry. It's not the people that he was interested in killing. He was interested in just breaking their stuff. So uh, Kiev wasn't offering that. That wasn't the kind of warfare that they wanted us to do. And so we left from there and drove. We had a contact in Mikolaev. So we drove all the way down to Mikolaev next day and uh, joined a unit there. They had a Ukrainian unit that had some Westerners attached to it. And those Westerners were professionals. I mean, you're talking like tier two guys. And, uh, and some British guys were, were pretty up there. And that's what I learned how to use. That's, that's half of Dakota's team. Is it? Yeah. yeah. So guys were, were no joke. And Dakota was part of them. And, <clears throat> and because we had this uh, in-law experience, which I considered 98% positive experience. It did work out mostly. And uh, when we were down there, the, the battalion that we were attached to, the company we were attached to, um, they had a javelin, one of them, and a couple of missiles. Because they're in this defensive position. They're overlooking this hill, you know, um, in case enemies are coming. They have a lot of Ukrainian anti-tank uh, rockets and things like that. Everything was anti-tank in that company. But they had a javelin just laying in the box somewhere in storage. And um, nobody knew how to use it. And they had one, right? And so all the British and American guys were like, hey, I mean, we know somebody knows how to use it. This is Dakota. So he was in the hospital at that time with his pneumonia mm-hmm. thing in Kiev after he was fighting in Michun. Um, so we were, I got this four Ukrainian guys, myself and some Westerners, they're in this dark room. It's about the size of this room, but hardly any lights. Um, and we're trying to learn how to use a javelin over Skype with Dakota. As, as he was checking out of the hospital, at the same time, so he was like talking to this lady. He's like, yeah, 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 something. He's like, oh, yeah, I had to push the, you know, hold the trigger. Yep, yep, hold on, let me sign this. And he's like, yep, did you pull, pull the trigger? Yep, okay, good. So, it was very frustrating, and connection was in and out, and it was mad. I was mad. He, I'm not sure if he was mad, but anyway, it wasn't very productive at all. But, and I have a picture of that as well. So. And then at the end of this um, training, so to speak, it, it went on for about two hours. So at the end of that training, we're like, okay, we need to do this in person. So Dakota hopped on the train, and he headed south to meet us so that we can do this the proper way. 
And that's kind of begin the journey where Mark has been involved heavily in facilitating the training for the Ukrainian Marines as well as the Army. Mm-hmm. And he would kind of get together a bunch of trainers, including Dakota, and I was an interpreter for him and some British guys that we all got together um, in a room full of Ukrainians, and they were teaching them. I was interpreting them. And we did that for several weeks, just back-to-back, a lot of guys. And then I got to the point to where once you, you interpreted, you know, six, four, five, six times, like you get to remember a lot. So, and then we got to the point to where I was teaching them without the trainers. So the trainers taught me, and I was teaching the Ukrainian troops. And that's kind of the beginning of that, about halfway through my two months um, tour, as you can say, was just doing that, is training them uh, on all kinds of different tactics. Right, so it's not just javelin was part of it. CQB was another part because there's a lot of these guys that they're they're experienced and everything else. So in law javelin, uh, Carl Gustav, mm-hmm. we taught that. Obviously, you know we shot some RPGs, uh, taught the guys how to use those. Um, we did some live fire drills. We did some basic drills for um, squad movements. You know, contact, react to contact, and things like that. Um, so that was that was going on for about the first month when I was there, and then um, what we at this time as we were teaching them on this javelin, we had this problem: is that there weren't enough batteries to doing any kind of extensive training. Like you could turn this thing on and on, play with it for a little bit, but but the battery will only last about four hours. Mm-hmm. So under uh, good conditions, um, if it's cold, it's going to be down to thirty minutes. So at that time, it was, it was a little frosty still, you know, a little colder coming out of the winter. So we didn't want to use it very much. And that's what Mark looked at this battery, looked up some specs. And he was a very handy guy living in Alaska, very remote, middle of nowhere. Kind of, if you don't fix it yourself, like you ain't going to Napa or picking up parts because there's no Napa. And um, he looked at this, he looked at the voltage, amperage, all that stuff. And he's like, I can make this. I can make a rechargeable battery for this. And uh, we got... 12 volt motorcycle batteries. We put them all together, um, working with the Ukrainian electricians, wired the whole thing, soldered the whole thing. Took took we took one of the um, Dakota went on the mission. That's when he shot that tank mm-hmm. with four guys sitting on it. So he fired um, he fired a javelin, killed the tank, killed the dudes on it. it was awesome. We're celebrating. He almost died that day. They were bombing. He was in this house. He was telling that story. He was in the house. They probably everything around it but hit, but their house which is incredible because we didn't have comms with these guys so we're at the base um we didn't have comms with them for a long time and that's a that's kind of been concerning because their mission was like five hours longer than it should have been i mean he comes back that battery they deemed it spent so we took the battery and we cut the connection off of it then they soldered the wires to our motorcycle batteries and made our own so we refurbished the box and everything. So what we wanted to do, what Mark wanted to do, really, that's I'm going to give like 99% of credit to him. Um, I was just there interpreting really for that portion. Uh, what he wanted to do is he wanted to give Ukrainians a training tool to where they can take that clue, turn it on, and use it for hours and hours on end, mm-hmm. practicing and practicing and practicing. And that wasn't available. And they had the javelin sitting in the box until Dakota was experienced in it did they allow him to use it? So 
So he soldered this whole thing in like three days, 3D printed a bunch of stuff. Oh. We got it. And then the <laughs> then you went to the um, to the storage where the rocket was. The sweet talk to this two Ukrainian guys to let them open the box up and plug in this this like improvised battery device into it and turn the sucker on. And I'm looking at this. It's like, dude, if Ukrainian command knew that you were messing with their 130,000 piece of tech, like without anybody's permission, th- those two guys would probably get their ranks pulled. You know, I don't know, maybe prison. I don't, I don't know what would have happened. And he goes, oh, oh, well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, because the mission was important, right? We wanted, there, there's some, this bureaucracy in, in Ukraine is just ridiculous and, and it's everywhere, but over there it's very heavy. Um, if they don't know something, they're not going to do it. They don't know you, they're not going to trust you. They don't know the process that the battery works, they're not going to turn it on. Because if it's something new, that's therefore it's not good. That's kind of the philosophy. And so that's why they're a little bit hesitant towards Westerners in the beginning. As we came, they're like, why are you here? That's not normal. Why would you be here? You know? And it took a little bit of proving yourself to get to the point where you can do, we can do things. So he turned the sucker on and it worked flawlessly. And, and honestly, analyzing it now, it wasn't as much risk as, as I thought it was in the beginning because volts are volts and amps are amps. You know, you do the math correctly, it does, it does the job, you know. Mm-hmm. There's no mystery in that recipe. So it's just science, you know. And we had a certified electrician on our side that was helping us design this thing. So they turned it on and it worked. Then we got a, a battery charger. And then within a day, we had a unit that was 10 kilos, heavy, fat and heavy unit, that will run for 10 hours. Then, wow. then all of a sudden, we can get Dakota and the British guy and myself in the room with 24 Ukrainians at a time. We can plug that sucker in and every one of them can play with joystick controls, um, with contrast, with everything, but the track gates obviously can't activate the missile and stuff. So we're able to practice with it a lot. And I, I practice with it an insane amount of time because I had it in my hands most of the time. So then we ended up taking it into our, into our living quarters. We were looking out the window at night and like doing all these things. So it got to the point to where I knew how to use it well. And at that time, the Ukrainians that we taught started going on missions. And I remember this battalion commander that we were staying at his base uh, came to me in like the middle of the night. Well, it's like 10, 11 p.m. And he said, we're going to go on the op. And I wanted to know if you wanted to come with. And I've been asking him to go on the op for a long time. And he said, you don't have combat experience. So really, I can't. I don't have anything for you. And I said, dude, like I'm here. I volunteered. I want to go to the front. I know how to shoot. And I know how to use this thing, the javelin. And he's like, yeah, but no combat experience. Again, if it's something new, mm-hmm. that's not allowed, you know. So after about a week or so, a week and a half of us training this other guys, he comes to me and he says, I want you to, I want you to go in this op. Uh, it's anti-tank op. And, and that was like, you know, why the change? And he goes, the guys we're sending are scared. And he said, I want you to be their saving grace I want you to come and show him that even, you know, a foreigner volunteer like you are not scared to do this. Were they, what were they afraid of dying by the Russians or just, just what was the fear that this, that, that, that when nothing these guys was are work? mobilized, you know, okay. they're not, a, they're not a professional army. They're just were regular people a month ago, 
and mm. other soldiers going up against tanks with the tech they've only had six hours of training on. Yeah, so they weren't confident. Yeah. Is, is pretty much it. So, and I was like, okay, well. And then he looks at me. He's like, you're not going to run, aren't you? I was like, no, I'm not going to run. So he asked me that like three or four times. <laughs> I was like, okay, we need to get past this conversation. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's fucking do this, <laughs> you know. So we go on this op, and uh, we didn't even shoot a tank. Um, we show up. There's a field. There's them on that side, us on this side, but there's a hump in the middle, and you can't see anything. Could you could you see? You know where the Russians were, though? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, so you guys, did you guys have eyes on... How many tanks? Like, wasn't it wasn't tanks or was it tanks? It was tank. They had a tank. They had a BTR, and then they had the mortar position. Okay, so you actually knew. Yeah, we knew where they were, but intel was bad for us because we got this. Um, we got with this uh, Ukrainian uh, SF guys that they were leading the op, mm-hmm. and then they planned it. We just showed up, got with them. Um, it's the same SF group that actually Dakota was with, um, Ukrainian SF. Mm-hmm. Really cool guys. I mean, they're great guys. They're just the ones that forgot the nods in their bag. Oh, you know? yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. So there are two teams. He was in the op with one one team, and I was in the op with this other team. And the intel was bad. It's just because there's a like a kilometer and a half or kilometer uh, field, and there's a hump in the middle that's about six feet. And all it took for us not to be able to see over it to see their position, right? Six feet at 500 meters hides a whole lot more 500 meters after that. So we're looking at this hump. It's like, oh, crap. So we walk up and down this position. We couldn't find anything. We got in a corner. We saw where their motor position is. If you stand up all the way straight, binoculars, you can see the motor position. So we zeroed artillery on him, hit him with that. How far away was that? It was a kilometer away from us. Yeah, but artillery, our artillery was coming from who knows did, where. Did they not have any way to pin or see you guys whatsoever? Was this at night? No, it was during the day. During the day. Mm-hmm. And they had no idea you were there? Uh, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but one K away is, is, I mean, that's significantly, it's a far distance, but yeah. So we ended up just had artillery take care of it. We gave him the coordinates on this. There were no radios. Oh, good. So, so, so just go on the Google map. we just look it up. we look where we are, you know, figure out where they are. And you give them a a pin and you just screenshot and send it to him and then. Five minutes later, just stuff starts exploding in the tree line. So we're like, okay, let's get out of here because there's their tree line and our tree line. So eventually, they're going to figure out that we're observing from this tree line because there's nowhere else we could be. Right? So we just bail out of there. We have two guys that actually were holding that position. There's a machine gun uh, position this side, and there's another guy who was full gila suit, just living in that area, watching the enemies. So he wasn't part of a unit. He's just people that hold that line. So we ended up leaving that area, and we had a few moments where there's some movement. The left of us is kind of a gray zone. Not, we don't hold it. Russians don't hold it. Anybody can kind of walks and goes, and there was some movement there. We thought we are going to be in contact for a minute. Um, for about an hour or so, we we're just sitting there aiming at that area, waiting for something to jump out so we can shoot it. We didn't want to advance into it, into the dark, into the, to the thick brush, but anyway. So after the saw, we come back, and um, ever since then, they've asked me to go on every op that they had. So obviously, I didn't run, and um, you know, nothing, nothing really crazy happened at the same time. But you know, I felt like it was it was fine. So um, the sergeant that was a team lead at that time, our fire team lead, I don't know what report he gave to my battalion commander, but. 
shortly after this, he called me and he said, here's a truck. Here's a javelin. Here's three rockets. And I want you to go work with this other unit. Because they asked for reinforcement. And then, and then go support them. So he gave me his javelin and the rockets away. Because after we trained a bunch of his battalion guys with his makeshift battery, then he went to his commander and said, hey, I had these guys that trained our guys that we are professionals now, so I want more javelins. So they gave him two or three more of those. So by this providing this training, we were able to get equipment out of storage and into the front line and mm -hmm. into the hands of guys that are actually going to use it. And they ended up burning some equipment with that. So, and that's where another story, that's where my second month is what I spent. Um, it kind of left Mark um, on the side of teaching Ukrainians how to um, continue to teach javelin mm -hmm. with different instructors and different uh, sets of interpreters. And then I myself went on the ops for the last month. Um, so that was the month of April. I spent the entire month uh, doing ops, just back to back. Um, I probably went, I don't know, 14 or 16 of them. Uh, with some breaks in between for weather and, like, other things. Um, what was cool, yeah, what was cool is that, so attached to this new unit, right? So just me in the truck. Was, so what was this at? That was in Mikolaev. So uh, still in Mikolaev. So Mikolaev areas were based, but we were fighting in Kherson region. Mm-hmm. So. Are you from Kherson? No. But I'm not from Kherson, but I have family that's from Kherson region. Kherson region, I mean, that's pretty big. I mean... If you look at it on a map, it, it, it really is yep. quite quite large. It's all farmland, correct, for the most part? A lot on of the it. outer edges, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I later found out that the village where my mother grew up, when my grandmother still lived and my uncle still lived, uh, was occupied. I found out that they drove my grandmother and my aunt in the basement. Uh, and I'm talking basement, not like American basement, maybe you live in. I'm talking cellar like a root cellar, just dirt floor, mm -hmm. concrete walls, wet, you know. They lived in that for several weeks. Uh, my family home has been destroyed. I had three artillery pieces fly into it, reduced it to rubble. Same home my grandfather built with his own hands. Same home I spent many, many months in. Um, the Across the street, four houses over, my uncle built himself a house, which I helped him build with his very hands has been taken by the Russians and turned into her, their kind of some kind of command base. Um, they, he was able, my uncle fled the day before they, they took over the village and uh, they took it. Uh, now it's reduced to rubble as well. And the Russians, before leaving, they used his vehicle and they shot it to pieces. And now my grandmother, my uncle, my aunt, are both refugees. They're all refugees. And let's just say... I had a lot of motivation to, to stay there. And if it wasn't for some family issues that I had going on, I'd probably still be there. And as I found out about this, I kind of had a little bit of a renewed sense of, of purpose as to why I was there. Uh, on one hand, I wanted to get my brother out who didn't want to be saved. On another hand, I was not okay with the Russians doing what they were doing to, to the place where I grew up. The, the injustice of it was so black and white that there was no, there's no doubt in my mind that what we're doing was right. And there's no doubt in anybody of the soldiers that I've been with that what we were doing was right. It was just defending this land from invaders is all it was. 
you know, and I said this interview to somebody, and I said it's not a war against good versus evil. You know, this is a war of evil versus just regular people. So regular people live in regular lives, and then the Russians show up and decide to wage a war on them. And now they're getting their teeth kicked in. Fairly well. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited because I, I, are you, are you, can you, can you say if you're going back or not? Is that something? Let it be a surprise for the enemy. Okay. <laughs> but what I'm saying, if you ever do end up somehow getting back over there, I hope you get to hang out with around the high Mars a little bit. Those things are f- insane. You have to, like, if you ever see one, I want you to take a photo of it, which is yeah. too solid because, like, those things have became the biggest meme as well, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's high Mars o'clock. Have you seen those? Uh-uh. It's a terrible time of the day. It's a terrible time to be a Russian all time of the day. So, so you went on these operations for a month, a month and some change or whatever. You said you want about fifteen of them. Yeah. Is there is there is there some you you want to speak about or anything? Because yeah. I love hearing these kind of stories too. These are like yeah. I love these things. There's some good ones. Uh, I'll tell you now where I almost got Mark killed, and uh, I take one hundred percent of the blame for this. So. I've been going on these ops with the Ukrainians um, for a while. Th- at that time, I separated from the Westerners. On separated, maybe not the right word. They just Ukrainians has asked me help over there, so I did that because I spoke the language. Mm. And uh, before I went on ops, on a couple ops with the uh, Westerners because I was a person in between the Ukrainians and the Westerners, so we can have proper communication. And that worked out pretty well. Uh, there's obviously delay in communication, but nothing, nothing crazy battles happened, so it was fine. So as we were having all this fun with the Ukrainian unit, um, I've asked Mark if he wanted to come join us on the op. He goes, sure. So he goes out there to join us on this op. We uh, drive up to this village, leave vehicles, we start hiking. Uh, we get to this uh, house that's uh, battalion commander stays. So he, we're talking, he gets on the radio, and he goes and signals to one of his... Two eyes we have there, right? There's there's like 50 guys in that area. I'm not going to tell you the village or anything, but that's old intel anyway from, you know, four months ago, five months ago. So there's like 50 guys. And then uh, we've got two eyes on both sides of the village facing the enemy. So he radios this the one of the eyes, and he goes, hey, you have four guys coming to your position. And immediately I'm thinking, that's that's a mistake. Because if they're listening, now all I got to do is sit there and wait for us and watch. So I was like, I didn't like that. But I was like, okay, well, let's proceed. So we start walking. We have a guide. He's getting us through the village. There's about 100 houses. It's pretty long. It's like two and a half maybe kilometers. It took us like 15 minutes to walk there. It was a fairly long village uh, stretched out. There's about three streets, but it was it was kind of goes on for a long time. So we start walking up there. Again, we have anti-tank, everything, and we need to find the tank because it comes out and harasses them about three times a day. So come out and shoot up the village and disappear. Come out, shoot, and disappear, right? And you come on this side, come on that side, kind of trying to, they, the enemy trying to be unpredictable a little bit. But we know they're in the tree line hiding somewhere. So we'll walk up there. We'll get to this corner house. It's a white house. And I remember this is a U.S. Marine from our work. Uh, he actually worked for me. He said, uh, in his combat experience, he was giving me a lot of advice, different advice, and he said, don't climb stairs. He said, whatever you do, do not climb stairs. Like, get inside the house, cut a hole in the ceiling, put a ladder, climb that way. Don't climb the stairs that are already there. 
So what do I do? I lead the team. And uh, I get there, and I climb some f***ing stairs. And as we're upstairs on the second floor, I'm a, I'm a camo silhouette walking on the stairs of a white house. And as I get to the second floor, I think that's, that was a mistake. I was like, that's a, that's a mistake, big mistake. And the eyes are there, so the guys are there. So I was like, I think I may have burned their position. So I was like, we need to get out of here. So we climb back down the stairs. We start walking. And the way it's working, the street goes like this. There's a row of, of houses. We're facing the enemy. The enemy is at least a kilometer away. Uh, there could be two kilometers where the actual tanks are. But we're sitting there in the eyes. We couldn't see anybody, right? It's pretty far away. But our binoculars weren't fantastic anyway. So just a bad, bad decision. And, and I come back down. We start walking. I lead the team out. Um, get to another set of eyes, which is uh, all across the village. There's a walk-in, and there's these houses, and they have fences between. There's a fence, and there's an open field for a kilometer, then there's a tree line where the enemy could be, right? So I know they have eyes somewhere in there. So watching the village. There's a walk-in, these houses are fine, and then there's this fence. It's, it's not a see-through fence. It's the solid fence, and there's a section that's missing. It's probably like 20, 40 feet or so, 20, maybe 30 feet of missing the section. And I remember I, I come up to that and I stop and I stop the, uh, our fire team. And I look at that section missing and I look through these trees, I kind of peek over it and I say, that's, that's not a good, uh, I don't want to walk in front of this open area. That's a bad idea. So I hesitate. I hesitate for about 30 seconds or so and I turn around and as soon as I talk to my team, I said, hey, I don't like that opening in the tree line. We need to move. We need to switch the route. And as soon as I say this, that area, what I was supposed to be 30 seconds later, all of it explodes. They throw five motors tight, 82 millimeters, just boom, 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 in that whole area, and it's gone, right? So we hit the deck, and I remember that's the first time that somebody deliberately tried to kill me not just us in general, somewhere in the city, somewhere in an apartment complex or a base, you know, just throwing cruise missiles at us. You know, that wasn't personal, right? But those people, somebody saw us specifically, and they zeroed in on just us. And I, and I remember that um, for the first time. And I remember I was laying there on the ground watching for the bombing to stop. I mean, waiting for it to stop. And as it stopped... I, I wanted to, I've never been in a situation where somebody was trying to kill me. Um, uh, a few times I had to draw a gun on somebody in the United States, but, you know, nothing, nothing too bad. Uh, it was all, got de-escalated very quickly, but um, at that time I had to self-examine myself to see, like, what am I, what am I feeling right now in this situation where I'm near death, right? And what I found is, is again, no combat experience before, but I found that I was calm. And that's for the first time that I thought there, because there's always hesitation, right? You go on the map, you go on the op, you don't know what's going to happen. And that's what I knew in my heart that I could do this. This whole war thing, the fighting, I can do this. And I remember Mark looks at me, and he's got like near 20 years of military experience, and most of it is SF. He looks at me and he goes, Anton, what do you want to do? Because we can't stay here. And I was like, Mark, why are you asking me? You're the SF guy. I'm like a regular Joe. 
He goes, Anton, what do you want to do? And I was like, we need to get out of here. So obviously we're not going to go that way. We're going to cut across the street. We're going to kick some doors. We're going to go through some fields, some houses, and we're going to get out. He goes, lead the way. So I get out there and I lead the team, kick some doors. We go through this fences. We go through this parallel street. We get to the parallel street and then we got to cross it. There's an opening like this. We got to cross it. I go, no, we're not going to cross it here. It's too obvious. We're going to go one street down, then we cross. We go one street down, we cross, and that parallel street explodes again. So within seven minutes, they hit us twice with 10 or 30 pieces. And their only reason we're alive today is because of some hesitation slash inspiration not to cross that and also unpredictability of the path. And I've learned a lot that day. Um, we ended up maneuvering out of there. We got to a low spot. They couldn't see us. I don't know if they had drone on us or if they had just, just very good optics that they were watching us move. I'm not sure, but but their motor team knew exactly what they were doing because their, their, their fire was accurate and their forward observers knew exactly what they were doing because the coordinates that they gave them were very accurate. And I remember that day, I've learned a lot. I've learned uh, responsibility I had not only over myself but the team that I was leading um, that for some reason they allowed me to do that. There are people more experienced than I am were in that uh, fire team, both on the Ukrainian side and in the U.S. side. Um, but for some reason, they let me do it. And, I, and I've taken that responsibility seriously before, but, but I've started taking it extra ever since. And uh, we've never got this close again. Um, we came back. I kind of joke about it. I almost got Mark killed. Um, and then after that, um, we had another op, which is that's that's when we actually hurt the enemy. So if you want to hear about that. I want to hear all of them. I'm, 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 I'm soaking it in like a f***ing sponge. Keep it going. I think everybody wants to f***ing hear. I mean, that Braden back over there, I don't know what he's doing in his f***ing life, but I think he wants to hear it too. Yeah, <laughs> but everybody wants to hear it. So, That's what you're here for, to tell your f***ing story. So when we came back from that op, um, uh, it was a, anyway, it was interesting. I, I felt like a failure because we couldn't get this, we couldn't get this, um, um, anyway. We couldn't get it done what we needed to get done, but we're going to be back at it again. It's just what we do. We go back there again and again. Um so we've, ever since we've operated on a different side of the village, we draw up there every day uh, looking for enemies because they'll come, they'll come harass them, come back. But that side, they're about two kilometers away. And, um, and there's a tree line where we were. There's a tree line in the middle, and there's a tree line of them is where they are. And then there's this road. They'll drive up on the road about halfway, stay about a kilometer back, 800 meters back, and they'll shoot up our position because we had a, a five-man team in the corner holding the crossroad. Um, with RPGs and everything. But we couldn't reach him because they're 800 meters away, not 400, 600, you know, where you can reach with good stuff or something. And they knew that They knew that well. That's why they were way back. They shoot us with the 20 mil millimeter, you know, just chop, cut the trees above our head, mm -hmm. right? And, and I remember I went out there uh, a number of times when we got to that position and we were talking to this local Ukrainians there. And there's something that stuck out to me was the motivation that the Russians had versus what Ukrainians had. I'm excited to hear this one because I talk about this all the time. I, I'm, I'm excited. I've heard so many like intercepted phone calls or like mm -hmm. transcripts from, from them disobeying and like giving up and certain, I'm, I'm excited. This is, this mm -hmm. is a piece. I hope, I hope I haven't been steering people incorrectly here. 
You're about to tell so me. I'm, I'm about to tell you. So when, why, why were we even there? Um, what happened was we were asked to come and help, help secure this sector. And there's two villages uh, fairly close together. And then uh, they're both being held by two different battalions. And we just, the first day, we basically drove up. And to the, the battalion commander, he looks at us and said, who are you? He goes, we are an anti-tank team came to kill you tanks for you. He goes, all right. Do you know where to go? Like, yep. Okay. I'll tell my guys not to shoot you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that was it. And that's how it worked. That's, oh, as, that's as much as, you know, permission we needed. We needed verbal from, from a guy. We shook hands. And he goes, be careful. I was like, all right. And we just went out there. And we did our job. So um, one of the many missions, right, they all kind of blur together because you go to the same spot, you know, so many weeks in a row that what happened on one day, you kind of getting blurred with what happened another day. But one of these days we went out there, and I remember there's five guys that hold in this corner. They have some anti-tank stuff set up and everything. I remember one of them. He's a younger Ukrainian guy, maybe 28 or so. He's missing half the teeth. Um from just like bad hygiene, you know, oh, they're just okay. like rotting away and whatnot. But mm. he's too young for this, so I don't know. But he's in the army. Uh, there's no body armor. He's wearing uh, green pants. He's wearing a black jacket. And I look at him. I was like, dude, you can't wear black, like just black silhouette. I was like, that's bad. You got to take this off. So he takes this off. He's got like a green shirt underneath. Um, I guess he was deed. Yeah, anyway. You could see him a mile away wearing that. And, um, and I remember I was looking in his eyes, and he had that glass stare, you know, that 1,000-yard mm -hmm. stare. And he had that, and a lot of these Ukrainians had that. And um, they're not from that area. They're not from that village. They're conscripts from somewhere else. And they sit there. They had an in-law. Um I was looking, I was like, oh, hey, you guys know how to use it. He's like, yeah, we know how to use it. Okay, cool. So I pick it up, pick up this in-law, and I look at it. One of the levers, safety levers, is broken. They mishandled Somebody dropped it, whatever. It's broken. It's non-functioning in-law. Can't even do anything with it. I looked at it. I was like, you know, this is not going to work, and this is why this lever is missing. I told his command and everything. He goes. So we just put it in the corner. We had some RPG-7s laying around. We had some AT-4s. Stuff like that, but but that in law wasn't working. And we sit there. Um, one of these days when, when we weren't there, BTR came out and shot one of the guys with, with a 20 millimeter in the leg. We had an evac. Our team went out there to evac him. Um, I didn't think they were going to come back. They jumped in the truck, had a machine gun mounted on it. We had a driver who, out of all of us, like nine, nine people that, that day, out of all of us, our... Um, like a platoon leader was the driver. Our medic was in the back and the machine gunner in the, in the back of it. Like a, it wasn't a turret, but it was a pickup truck with a tripod. And I thought, and that, that was one of the lessons of leadership uh, to me that I've seen live. Re read about it in the book, but you see it live, how a commander, instead of looking at me and say, hey, you know how to drive, hop in the truck, get out there, do the battle, and get this guy. He put all of us out in the back, and he risked his own life to go get our guy. And I thought that was that was interesting. 